Good evening. Our second Bible reading for today comes from Habakkuk chapter 1, and you can find it on page 980 of some of your church Bibles. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They come all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on guilty men whose own strength is their God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked soil up those most righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? This is God's word. There is a, um, an outline for the talk tonight, so if you need to grab one, feel free, feel free to grab one. There's also the full transcript for those of you who would like that. That might be helpful. Do keep the Bible open to Habakkuk. Now, if you, if you did not open the Bible before, now's the time to open it. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, it's four books back from the New Testament. If you don't know where that is, check the contents page. If you don't know where the contents page is, just turn to page 980, and that's how you'll find it. But I will pray once more, and we'll have a look at this passage. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, this is a book we know that was written thousands of years ago to a different people in a different time, but we know that though this book is not about us, it is for us, so help us to see that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder whether we live a sheltered life. What do you think? Reflect on your own life. Is it a sheltered life? Well, let me reflect a bit on my own life. Uh, in general, work is good. I work here. What do they say about ministers? They work one day a week. Uh, invisible the rest, incomprehensible on one. But anyway, and you guys treat me well, so thanks for that. Work is good. Studies going well. I'm still doing some studies. That's going okay. Relationships that I have, they're a joy. Family life is harmonious and it's good. And it's good when the kids are behaving, and that is when they're doing their calculus and times tables and doing their piano practice. No calculus, don't worry. <laughs> and clean up after themselves most of the time. And, and when Yvonne, every time she sees me, when she's very happy and overjoyed, that's a good life. That's a good family life. <laughs> and, of course, life seems quite good. Seems a bit sheltered. Sometimes, of course, there are busy times, there are stressful times, and sometimes the pressure's just on. But, in general, I wonder whether my life, perhaps your life, is a bit sheltered. I wonder whether your life is a bit similar. And to be honest, I actually enjoy that. I like it. I like a sheltered life, delighting in the goodness of God every day of the week, enjoying in good Christian fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, having fun with the kids at playgrounds and being adored by Yvonne each day. That's nice. Or adoring her as well, of course. But then every once in a while, something comes up that shakes my life. Something comes up that shakes my life. Something like this that comes in the mail. This came recently. This is a publication by Barnabas Fund. And the subheading is an agency for the persecuted church bringing hope to suffering Christians. Now, when I get this in the, ma uh, in the mail, it's wrapped up in this clear plastic, so I know it's from them. Do you know what I normally do? I toss it aside. I toss it aside. I'm really excited about opening up this publication. And do you know why? It's because I live a sheltered life. I enjoy life as it is, the joys, the privileges, the plenty. And I know as soon as I open up this publication, it will be depressing. It will be depressing. I know that when I open this up, I'll be confronted by the sadness, the despair, the poverty, the hopelessness of so many of my fellow brothers and sisters around the world. And that's just depressing. And so often when I get this, it's in this clear plastic, I toss it aside. But eventually I'll, I'll open it up. Now why would I do that? Knowing what I will be reading inside. It's because it will keep my life real, away from the sheltered life. Leave my sheltered existence and keep my life real because it reminds me of the reality of day-to-day -day existence for so many, an existence that I don't face, an existence that I may never face, and it keeps it real for me. It keeps this world in perspective for me, it keeps it real. And so what do we see in this latest edition? Listen to this. Page three. Asia Bibi. She's 
taken captive. She's uh, on death row in Pakistan. And for what reason? For being a Christian. They're asking for help. Page 5. Remember in 2015, in February, 21 brave Christians, migrant workers in Libya, they refused to deny Jesus as their Lord. What happened? They were all killed by the Islamic State. Page 6. Ugandan pastor, convert from Islam. What happened to him? Christmas Eve 2011, two Muslims threw acid on his face. Page 7. Nisa Hussein and his wife from Bradford in UK. This is the, a Western nation. They were condemned as apostates. They were converts from Islam. And what happened? Well, their house was burned, their car attacked, and he was beaten and hospitalized, falsely accused to the police as well. And then page 9 now. Remember this story. 218 schoolgirls kidnapped by Boko Haram. Remember that? Now, now they're seeking help. Their family's in trouble. They're seeking help. And one that sort of takes the cake for me, page 5 of this. Page 5. Child sacrifice today in India. Would you believe that? Child sacrifice, and often only baby girls, left on the seashore in baskets to appease the angry sea god. That's what farmers would do. Give away little girls, baby girls, put them at the sea for them to die as sacrifice so that they would have a good harvest. Imagine that. Every time I open this up, it's depressing. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, that just on that point, how, how people can ever think that all religions of the world are the same. When you read this, you can see they're not. And so do you see what I mean by keeping it real? Keeping life real. It's very easy to live the sheltered life. I like that. I enjoy that, but we need to live the real life. And so when I reflect on that, I open it up. Actually, it helps me see all the concerns, all the little issues of my life, all the little conflicts and the things that I have to endure. What a day compared to that. What a day compared to that. And so what do you do then when you get real with life? What do you do? Well, you leave the comfort and the shelter and when you're confronted by the harsh realities of day-to-day -day life for so many who experience injustice, but not just injustice that we might feel, gross injustice, who experience wickedness and evil, where there is no hope for them or their children and their future. What do you do when you're confronted with the harsh realities of life? I like to ignore it, to continue to live my somewhat sheltered life, ignoring these things that I know will weigh heavy on my heart. But what do you do? Well, do you know what Habakkuk did? We turn to this prophet now. He was a prophet of the 7th century BC. So that's about 600 years before the coming of Jesus. Now, by this stage, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, they were already destroyed by the superpower, the Assyrians. So a bit of history here. Northern kingdom, gone. The only one that was left was the southern kingdom, known as Judah. Now, Habakkuk, this guy was an extraordinary prophet. You see, he wasn't a normal prophet. Normal prophets, the way they functioned was they were God's mouthpiece. What God told them to say, they said to the people, thus says the Lord. That's a normal prophet. 
And that was often very risky business for the prophets because often what God told these prophets to say to the people, the people did not want to hear. The prophets was calling the people, come back to God, repent, turn from your evil ways or else. And so it was risky business for the prophets and many prophets died because they proclaimed what God told them to say to the people. And so Isaiah the prophet, he was cut in two. Jeremiah, he was stoned. Ezekiel, he was executed. That was a normal prophet of God. It was risky business. But Habakkuk, who we're learning about today, rather than be the mouthpiece of God to the people, he spoke as God's prophet to God. He went the other way. This guy was in some risky business here. This guy had the audacity to turn back to God and to question God. Not question the people, how are you living? Turn back to God. But question God. What do you think you're doing, God? How can you allow these things to happen in this world, in your world? And so you see, Habakkuk was keeping it real. He was faced with the harsh realities of life. And rather than ignoring it, he was confronting God with it. And so he cries out, Why, Lord? How long, O Lord, must this continue? And so in our passage, this is what we see. We see this interchange, this dialogue between Habakkuk and God and then Habakkuk. Habakkuk, he complains to God. God answers, he responds. And in light of what God says, he complains again. He complains even more. And so let's have a look. His first complaint. Now here you must sense his frustration. Just read the words and, and feel it. Sense his frustration, not with just people, but with God. It's not making sense to him what he's seeing and what he knows about God. This is God's world. And more than that, the evilness that was happening was happening among the people of God. It wasn't the foreigners who were being bad. It was the people of God who was being bad. You see, they were meant to be the light to the nations, a nation of righteous, holy, God-living that would show the world how great their God was. But here Habakkuk was seeing gross wickedness amongst their people, amongst his people, gross injustice amongst his people. But not just amongst the people, amongst the leaders. But not just amongst any leader, amongst the kings of Judah. Now the nation of Judah, the last four kings of this nation, they were wicked and evil. Now Habakkuk, he was a contemporary of another prophet, Jeremiah. And what we learn in Jeremiah was what these kings did. So the fourth last king, Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, who was a good king, well, his son was bad. He made his countrymen work for nothing. He wanted to build a palace. I wanted to make a name for myself amongst the nation. I want a big new palace for myself. So he got his people to work for nothing. Did not care for the poor or needy as he should have as king. He exploited them. Habakkuk was seeing that. And likewise, the following three kings were just as evil and wicked. Led their people in evil ways. And so, as the prophet of God, you know God, you see your people, can you sense his frustration here? Not just at his people, but at God. God, what are you doing? How can you allow these things to happen? It's what I feel when I see Barnabas' fun publication. God, these are your people. How can you allow these things to happen to your people? Why aren't you doing anything about it? 
And so do you see his cry? Have a look at verse 1, 1 to 4. Try to feel it as we read through it. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And so he's saying to God here, what's the point of your laws, God? They do nothing. The wicked people, they abuse your laws. The righteous, they're all cornered. They can't do good. Justice never prevails. It's a hopeless mess, this nation. His complaint to God. God responds. How did God respond? Well, unlike in Job, where God did not respond, did not answer their questions, his questions, but threw back more questions. Remember Job? Questions which took Job off his high horses. What right do you have, Job, to question me? But here in this book, it's different. God, in fact, does respond and gives an answer. And what was that? That answer. Or here, Habakkuk was in for a huge shock. Will there be justice? Habakkuk is crying, we want justice, God. Will there be justice? Well, the response is yes, but not in the way Habakkuk could have imagined. Have a look at verse 5. God says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And how would that justice arrive? God is pronouncing, there will be justice. Well, here's the shock. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are like a, a law to themselves and promote their own honour. You see, God's way of justice was to, to use this not a righteous nation to punish his own people, but to send this ruthless nation to raise them up, to use evil to punish evil. Now, does that just blow your mind that God is going to do this? That God is promising to do this? Now, the Babylonians, they were ruthless. A bit of history. The Babylonians, for quite a while in history, they played second fiddle to the superpower of the time. The great superpower were the Assyrians. They ruled in that region for about four centuries. And they were the ones who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. They were the superpower, the Assyrians. Babylonians, they were second fiddle. But here God was saying he was going to raise the Babylonians. And when the Babylonian time came, they showed their former masters no mercy they completely destroyed the Syrian capital of Nineveh. See, the Babylonians, they were known for their ruthlessness and power. Nothing was able to get in their way throughout the Middle East as they expanded their empire. And we see this is what God describes here. God describes their power, their ruthlessness as they sweep through the land. Look at verses 8 to 9. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. They don't come with peace. 
on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. So do you get the sense of the power of the Babylonians here? They come like this big, fierce, ferocious animal, knocking down dominoes as they go. Nothing can stand in their way. There's no competition. They're unstoppable, this force. No king during that time could stand up against them. No fortress could withstand their power. And they were proud of their power. And this was the nation God would use to punish his own people. Now, how does that make you feel? You know, imagine you in Habakkuk's shoes, pleading for justice, mercy, how long, Lord? And God's answer was this. It's a bit like rubbing salt to the wound, making a bad situation worse. And so Habakkuk, he's heard this response from God. How does he respond now? Was he happy? Great idea, God. Use those ruthless, vicious, heartless Babylonians to attack your own people. Great idea, God. Well, what did he say? Well, he was confused big time. He was confused. It just doesn't make sense to him. Things just don't match up for him. And so firstly, he reflects on the God he knows, and he complains again. He goes to God and he complains again. How can you, God, allow such a thing? So have a look at verse 12. This is what you're like, God. He knows this. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh, Rock, you have ordained them to punish. So Habakkuk knows that this is what God is like. He is holy and he's in control. But now look at his complaint. Look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's saying to God, you're using a far more wicked people to punish us. That's not right. Are you sure you know how to rule God? Are you sure you know how to be God, God? And how bad are they? Well, he goes on. Habakkuk, he describes in verse 14. You, you have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Now, can you picture that in your mind? What Habakkuk is describing there. See, people, the people of that region, they're like helpless fish. And these wicked Babylonians, they just come and ruthlessly catch them all up with their nets and destroy them. As easy as that. And then verses 16, 17, he continues, and here he describes their pride, the pride of the Babylonians, their idolatry, their worship of their own power. So 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net and burn incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Do you see his complaint? Do you feel his frustration? God, what are you doing? How can you allow this? How can you, a holy God, tolerate such wickedness? I mean, God, your reputation here is on the line. And so that's a chapter we've read. Habakkuk, in this chapter, frustrated with God, angry with God, questions God, complains to God. And so for us now, 
as we reflect on this, what do you do with a passage like this? We know that this is in the Bible. It is the Word of God. It is not about us, but it is for us somehow. Well, I wonder whether what Habakkuk is really expressing here in his complaint and in his frustration to God is really what we all want to express to God as well deep down in our heart of hearts as we reflect on our life, as we see what we see in our life. He has the audacity to question God. Perhaps we want to question God that way too. And in one sense, he's doing it for us. And you see, we would question God that way, won't we? When we open our eyes and see and pick up publications like this. You know, go beyond our sheltered life and see the harsh realities and injustices and wickedness experienced by so many, so many in this world. When I pick up this, it's depressing, but I always cry out, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And often I've also reflected, I've, I've personally hoped, wouldn't it be so good, you perhaps share this hope with me, wouldn't it be so good if Jesus Christ returned tonight? Wouldn't that be so good? Wouldn't it be so good, in fact, if Jesus Christ returned now while we're all sitting here in church? thinking about him, praising him. Wouldn't that be so good? Even more so as a parent, while our kids are still young and not yet experienced much of the wickedness and evil in this world, while they are still walking in their childlike faith, trusting in Jesus. Wouldn't it be so good for Jesus to come now? Personally, I feel that even more so as a father of a daughter before the girl grows up and gets interested in things like guys and those things and i'll lose hair over that wouldn't it be so good if jesus returned now but we cry out how long O lord how long and that was habakkuk's cry and i wonder whether it reflects our cry as well but like for habakkuk god did answer didn't he god did respond to his cry and what was that well what we can learn from this passage is this God will bring about justice. God will bring about judgment, just not in the way we expect. He was probably expecting God, you know, send a plague, wipe out the wicked people, preserve the good people. But he wasn't expecting God to use this ruthless nation to punish their own people. And so it makes me wonder, if this is the way God has acted in history, in bringing about his judgment and justice, in ways we do not expect, I wonder if God is in fact bringing out his judgment on our world today in ways we do not expect, in ways we do not see. As Habakkuk, he reflected on his nation, uh, let me invite us now to reflect a bit on our nation, on our country, Australia. Australia, we know, is a secular country. But Australia owes much of its heritage to Christianity. Things like the common law draws heavily from Christian ethics and morality. Laws that even give us freedom that we enjoy now, but are today the freedom that is denied to Christians who came up with those laws. Let's reflect a bit more on our nation. On the first fleet to Australia, it was no accident that on board was an evangelical chaplain by the name of Richard Johnson. It was, in fact, something that 
John Newton, you know, the amazing grace guy, and William Wilberforce, you know, the guy who abolished, worked to abolish slavery. Together, they wanted a committed evangelical Christian to be chaplain to the new colony of Australia. Australia has its Christian heritage, you know, just like the nation of Judah, you know, a heritage with God and God's people. And that's why parliaments around Australia today still begin with the Lord's Prayer. Do you know that? And do you know that in the Australian Constitution's preamble, they include the words, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. That's written in our Constitution. What we enjoy today as a nation, the prosperity, the freedom, the democracy, it's because of our Christian heritage. But let's reflect on our land as Habakkuk reflected on his. What do we see in our nation today? Not only is the good Christian heritage ignored, it's even hated today in this progressively secular society. And what's the flavour of the season? Our leaders and many in our nation push to redefine marriage. That's the flavour of the season, isn't it? Push to change the nature of the family. Our leaders push to keep Christianity out of schools. Do you know that? It's an ironic turn of events, given that many of our schools were established by churches and once handed over to the government, but now Christianity is pushed out. Our leaders push sexual ideologies and practices upon children. This safe schools business is not safe at all. Not age-appropriate for kids to learn these things. Just this past week, this is what I learned. There's a book, it's titled, And Tango Makes Three, a book which is in fact banned in parts of the UK, USA, in Singapore. It is being introduced into Victorian schools by our government. This book teaches radical sex theory to our children. Our leaders, especially in Victoria, makes it so easy to legally murder unborn children up to 24 weeks for whatever reasons. I mean, talk about organised genocide of the vulnerable. Now, as a migrant, I reflect on the heritage of this nation. It is Christian to see how far we've gone. As a migrant, I'm angry. But many of you have been here for generations. How much more should you be angry at the state of affairs of our nation? And so what do you do when we reflect on our nation as Habakkuk reflected on his? How it has deteriorated morally. Well, Habakkuk, he cried out, how long, O Lord, how long? And we too must cry out, how long, O Lord? How long shall you allow the wickedness, evilness to be normalised in this world, in this nation that has Christian heritage? And what's God's answer here? Well, perhaps like for Habakkuk. You see, judgment came in ways he did not expect. And so I wonder whether God is in fact bringing judgment upon our nation in ways we do not expect, in ways we do not see. And that's why I had Romans chapter 1 as our first reading. Because what do we see there? What do we see there? We see that God is in fact angry with this world. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness in this world. And what does that judgment of God look like? Well, by the end of that first reading, you read that indictment on humanity. Not only do people continue to do things that deserve death, 
but they are also now approving of those who practice them. And what does God do in judgment? Well, you want to go off in your wicked and depraved ways? God's judgment is, I'll hand you over to them. Go ahead and you'll suffer for it. And so the flavour of the season, if same-sex marriage eventually gets pushed through in our nation, many people in our nation will think they've won the battle. But in God's eyes, in God's eyes, they have not won. It is, in fact, the judgment of God. And so I wonder whether God is, in fact, bringing his judgment over our nation by handing us over to our evil ways. But of course, as we reflect on the story of the Bible, that's not the full story of God's justice and judgment, is it? I mean, there's a bigger judgment to come, a final judgment to come. One, not only the leaders will have to face one day, but one where all of us will have to face one day. The judgment of God will fall on all people for how we have dishonoured God, shamed God as his creature, or outright right, rejected God. So we are part of the problem. And God will bring this justice and judgment. The storm of God's judgment is coming. What the, what, what the Judeans feared... That's nothing to what we have to fear as the storm of God's judgment is coming. But this time, God brings about judgment in the most unexpected way. Habakkuk had no way of anticipating this. No one could have ever imagined this because for us now, we have seen how God has brought about that judgment we all deserve, haven't we? Living on this side of the cross, living on this side in the times of the New Testament. What do we see? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we find out how God has dealt justly with the sins of this world. And what did God do? Well, God in his very own son, God punishes the evil and wickedness of us all. We didn't expect that. Habakkuk didn't expect that God would use a ruthless nation to punish them. Who could have ever imagined that God would use evil people to kill his son for our sake, to take our judgment. And that's what God did. And that's what we read in Acts chapter 2. This man, talking about Jesus Christ, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked people, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Who would have ever imagined that God would do that? Habakkuk could not imagine that Babylon would be used to, to punish them. But this is how God has dealt with the great judgment over all humanity to bring about the greatest justice for all humanity, never to be seen again when God poured out on his very own son the judgment that we deserve in his own son. God brings this judgment in the most unexpected way because what did God do here? didn't use a foreign nation to punish us. didn't use someone else to punish us. God bore the punishment himself in his son. Who could have ever imagined that God would do that for us? You see, God knows we cannot bear his punishment. But God says, I will bear it for you in my son. I will suffer in your place. Bear in my son the wrath you deserve. And so for the people during Habakkuk's time, there was no escape. The Babylonians, God promised, they are coming. They're going to punish you. For us now, it is different. 
there is a bigger judgment, but there is an escape now from this bigger and more terrifying judgment. If we cling on to the Son of God, that is the only escape there is. And that's why later on, the Apostle Paul, he quoted from our chapter today. He quoted from Habakkuk when he was explaining the gospel to the people in Antioch. He warned the people, Cling to Jesus or else. God has done something about your judgment that you deserve. Cling to Jesus or else. And so in Acts chapter 13, Paul says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And here he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You see, that is a warning. There is this frightening, fearful judgment of God coming. But you can escape if you cling onto Jesus. And so having said all that, God brings about his judgment and justice in ways we cannot expect. But this we see in the most unexpected way. God bears it himself in his own son. And so having heard all this, it's very easy now, I think for many of us, just to go back to live our sheltered life, our sheltered way of living. But you see, we have to keep life real. Just like what Paul warned those people, we have to see and feel what is in fact happening in this world. And so we must cry out all the time, how long, O oh Lord, how long? You see, for those of you who do not yet trust in Jesus, in a sense, be careful if you pray that prayer. If you pray that prayer, you look at the injustices and you pray, how long, O oh Lord, how long? But you have not clung on to Jesus yourself. Be careful, because the judgment of God will fall upon you if you do not choose to cling on to Jesus. But for those of us who do cling on to Jesus, who do trust in him, when we now cry out, how long, O oh Lord, how long? We cry out differently. We cry out differently to Habakkuk. We cry out because, differently because we know that God has dealt with the judgment we deserve already in his son. And so now we live, not, not the sheltered life. This is the assurance I get after reflecting on Barnabas' fun, reflecting on the word of God. This is the assurance I get. They don't live the sheltered life. I shouldn't live the sheltered life. But what I do know, because they cling on to Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they have a life that is sheltered by God. Not a sheltered life, but a life that is sheltered by God. And for those of us who cling on to Jesus, in all that we see in this world, we cling on to Jesus, we live a life that is sheltered by God as well. Let's praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness you help us see the harsh realities of life. You also help us see our need for a saviour. The only hope there is, the only escape there is from the coming judgment. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us cling on to Jesus. For those of us who have not yet work in their hearts that, might, that they might see their need for a saviour. And for us who do cling, help us to see that we are not to live the sheltered life, but to live this life fearlessly knowing that we are sheltered by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>